Hi, everybody. I'm Daniel. And I'm Frankie. And this is Propagated Podcast. We did it. Two thumbs up. We did it. That's it. That's the episode. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Not doing too great. Also, I think I might have a little bit of a cold, so if I sound really sniffly, my apologies. But yeah, I think we're talking about some pretty cool stuff today, though. So I'm excited. I'm really excited about it. I was going to do multiple things, and then I got really, really into just this one thing that I'm super excited to talk about. Yeah. So I'm doing a couple things, but they're all in like the same vein, I suppose. Of knowledge. Our, our theme. Our theme today is crazy weird fungi. Yeah, all the fungi. Oh, so hi, hi Daniel. How are you? You know, I'm pretty good. Pretty okay. Pretty fine. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's officially November. Oh, best month of the year. Ugh. <laughs> According to you. It's National um, Novel Writing Month. Are you writing a book this year? Oh, yeah, because we all know how talented I am at writing. So <laughs> that's something that I've definitely known for, is writing. I'm going to try it again. Third time's the charm in my in my <laughs> mind. So maybe maybe we'll get there this time. <laughs> so what are you telling me about today? So I want to talk about one of the older existing life forms on planet Earth. Ooh. And that does fungus. Fungus. So essentially... I'm not getting like super deep into any kind of fungus really. It's just more surface knowledge and a couple of like fun cool things to talk about like what some fungus can do and what it ha- what fungus. it is doing. Some fun <laughs> fungi. I was okay. trying to be alliterative and think of a third F word and I couldn't. Fantastically fun fungi. I was going to say fucking fun fun guy, but that's just, that's the difference between <laughs> you and I. That's the title of the there. episode. There we go. <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of really cool fungus out there and so yeah, much too. It's pretty fucking wild. I really, like I knew that it was like this big, huge thing, but I didn't really think about how massive it actually was and like how many different kinds there are. Didn't you say that the largest organism on earth is a fungus? living organism yeah Mm. um let's see where did i put that i have that note somewhere here it is it in my notes it says fun fact the largest living organism on the planet is a mushroom look at that and it's technically a honey mushroom that's actually in oregon and it spans 2200 acres wow which is like the equivalent of three and a half square miles holy crap and is estimated to be around 8,650 years old. We need to add this to our list of trips we're going to take post-COVID. Post-COVID? Go to Oregon? I mean, it's all underground, so I don't think it would well, be that Well, I know, impressive. but just like to like stand there and be like, we're here, we made it, we did it, we're standing on the largest <laughs> organism. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is actually in like a national park, though, which I'm sure would be really pretty to visit anyways. Well, I'm adding so. it to the list. i'm adding it to the list anyway even if it's a disappointment we can still go (laughs) oh another interesting fact though in 2017 there is a geologist and i'm sorry i'm gonna preface this again there are names in here that are 
some are Russian, some are German. <laughs> There's like a bunch of different names that I'm going to be using. And I'm just going to apologize to anybody who either knows these people, are these people, or has the same name as these people, because I'm probably going to butcher it. So just I just want to give that notice ahead of time, because it's probably what's going to happen. Um, but anyways, his name was Berger Rasmussen. He accidentally stumbled upon what may be the oldest known fossil ever. Ooh. And it's actually a fungus. And I thought that was pretty cool, just to like think about. Yeah. The discovery itself is still under peer review, so it's not a whole lot. Like that's like the whole scientific method, right? You gotta work your way through it and have everything be peer reviewed, so we know that that theory is like worth looking at. I don't know. That sounds fake to me. I feel like science <laughs> fake is news. just lying to me all the time. Fake news. <laughs> um, I don't know where you get your information, but. It definitely should not be science. Ever. <laughs> oh, did I tell you I just got a new sweatshirt that says protect our nocturnal pollinators and it has a bat on it? <laughs> Aw, I love that. I want one. That's cute. So, a couple fun facts out of the way. I'm going to depart fully away from fungi for a second and talk about Chernobyl. I would like to imagine that practically anyone listening has heard and knows the basics about Chernobyl. But just in case, I'm going to give you a quick little recap. So the Chernobyl accident itself occurred in 1986 and was the result of a flawed nuclear reactor design coupled with poorly trained staff. And the explosion itself released at least 5% of the radioactive core into the environment, causing the death of two people from the explosion itself and then 28 more people in the following weeks of radiation poisoning. And that those numbers are only including people who died relatively quickly from the radiation poisoning. That's not people whose lives was, were permanently altered because of the radiation poisoning. Yeah. But one of the craziest things, in my opinion, that happened was there was this formation off of one of the reactors, and they call it the elephant's foot. And essentially, it's like this large mass of radioactive material. And it was formed in the fallout during the Chernobyl disaster. And you're probably wondering what any of this has to do with fungus, because that's what this whole episode is about. But this specific, well, there's a few different types of fungus that they're like researching right now. And I'm going to try and pronounce them, and again, <laughs> we're just going to have, just bear with me. So there's Cladosporium spherospermum. Nice. Cryptococcus neoformans. Formans? 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 Who knows? Something like that. And then this one is the weirdest one. Uh, Wangiela dermatitis. Dermatitis. Dermatitis, dermatitis, I don't know. Nailed it. Something like that. <laughs> um, and those are a few types of fungus that are known to be able to actually eat radiation. Whoa! They feed off of it, which I think is so cool. So cool. Um, so that was actually discovered around 1991, which I'm surprised that that's like not kind of common knowledge. Now, I feel like I didn't know that there were radi radiation 
consuming fungi around, but we've known about it for quite a while. Huh. Yeah, since I was born. Yeah, since before I was born. <laughs> but these scientists were essentially like piloting these robots around in one of the buildings, which they had to do because you can't get close to some of the things without almost like guaranteed death. Yeah. But they discovered this pitch black fungi. And not only was it odd for them to find any kind of fungus, but it actually seemed while they were looking at it and observing it, that the fungi was growing towards the emission of the radiation, hmm. which, you know, kind of speaks to the fact that they want that, that that's what they're feeding off of. And here's what I think is, I guess, kind of the coolest part about this is that all of the funguses that they found that do consume radiation in different levels and different forms have higher amounts of melanin, which is the same thing that triggers our skin tone. Oh. Which kind of makes sense, I guess, when you think about it. Because melanin is like what our skin uses to absorb light and dissipate ultraviolet radiation. Yeah. Like that's what causes you to get a tan in the summertime. Mm or sunburn, is the dissipation of ultraviolet radiation. Mm -hmm. But in the fungi, it seems like it's almost working similarly similarly to, like, chlorophyll. Hmm. So it's actually taking that UV radiation and transmuting it into chemical energy. So it's kind of fucking wild, honestly. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so essentially that's kind of, like, how it works. It's, like, the bit of it. There's obviously a whole lot of science there that I didn't even look into because that seems like a lot. <laughs> um, but they're actually testing these fungi in space now, which I think is kind of cool to see, like, what's happening with it. So they took essentially eight different types of fungus that were all known to be around radioactive things. And they sent them to the International Space Station in 2016. Whoa. We haven't heard anything back from the study yet because it's only been two years. Uh, but the International Space Station experiences 40 to 80 times more radiation than what we do on Earth. Hmm. So it's like prime location to like see what they do and how they interact with that. But the whole goal behind the study itself uh, on the International Space Station is that some of the molecules produced when they are, I guess, eating, if you will, like when they're producing energy from radiation, could have some medicinal properties, which could be cool. Yeah. Probably give it another few years, and maybe we'll have some answers about the efficacy of this fungus. <laughs> and the efficacy of my brain is very low right now, <laughs> so sorry. Um. According to a scientist by the name of, again, I'm sorry about my pronunciation, Dada Chova, in a 2008 paper, this actually isn't a new thing. Mm. So I, for some reason, when I was reading about it, I kind of had it in my head that having radioactive mishaps spurred fungi to evolve into being able to accept radiation as a source of food mm -hmm. but that's not really true apparently there's been large quantities of 
highly melanized fungal spores found as early as the Cretaceous period. And that coincides with Earth's crossing the magnetic zero. So essentially it's like uh, when the magnetic poles switch, you know, Mm -hmm. and that results in a in like that magnetic shield we have from cosmic radiation. So even back in the Cretaceous period, when the earth was getting bombarded with more cosmic radiation, you had fungi kind of eating that. How cool. So kind of cool. Yeah. But really that's about all I have for radioactive eating fungi. Yeah, so I guess I can talk about plastic-eating fungi now. Yay! Another weird thing for fungi to be eating. Yeah, I maybe I was hungry when I thought of, of all of this and just focused on what fungi eats. I don't know. <laughs> it was, that, that's what my focus was definitely on in this one. Um, oh, I love it. Also, I love eating fungi as well. Oh, Mushrooms yeah. are great. I had, for lunch today, I had sautéed mushrooms and butter with onions and a little bit of fish. Ooh, so good. If I'm just sautéing mushrooms, chicken in the wood all day long. Mm. It's my favorite. Mm. My favorite. I kind of want to, like, become a mushroom forager just so I can eat them so much more than I do already. (laughs) I would love to become a mushroom forager, but I'm also, like, low-key terrified of dying. From eating mushrooms? Yeah, or getting, like, hella sick. That's fair. I do have the Audubon Field Guide to uh, mushrooms, so... I feel like you kind of have to be like a mycologist to make real decisions because there's like all sorts of, this mushroom is edible. This mushroom that looks exactly identical except for one black spot underneath (laughs) the fifth gill on the left side. (laughs) Like kind of shit, you know? I feel like that's a lot of foraging though. Like uh, you learn which ones are safe and don't have lookalikes and then you just eat those. Fair, 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 fair. I, I doubt that the radiation-eating fungus is edible by humans, right? You know, I actually didn't look into that. <laughs> I would assume not. Assume it's not. Probably not something you want to consume. But if they're consuming it, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're repurposing it. So I don't know if, like, I don't know how that chemical breakdown works. Yeah, no, me either. I'm not a chemist. Like, whether they're able to somehow metabolize radiation and make it safe. Yeah. So I'm just going to start with a depressing statistic. We now have 150 million tons of plastic in our oceans. Ew. According to some estimates, by the year 2050... There could be more plastic by weight than fish. Plastic is not heavy. For there to be more plastic than fish is a lot. Did you read that, side note, did you read that NPR article about how um, Big Oil conned us all into buying plastic saying by saying it's recyclable, but none of it is, and they've just been throwing it into landfills this whole time anyway? I did not read that. Yeah. It's, it's, you should probably send me a link to it so I can be educated, but I also hate being depressed. It's really so. painful. It's hard to read. but There's that. Yeah. Did you know that I've been trying to have a plastic-free household, and it's pretty much impossible? 
I mean, if you're not willing to, like, just entirely and completely change everything about your lifestyle and go live on a farm. Yeah. It's not really possible. Even then, if you take any medication, boom, plastic. Oh, that's fair. Sad days. Um, plastic is evil. <laughs> but tell me about something that evil. eats plastic. Yeah. So, enter the mushroom. In 2011, there were some students at of Yale who made the news with the discovery of a fungus in Ecuador. I'm going to try a name again. Pestalotiopsis microspora. Ooh. And this particular mushroom has the ability to digest and break down polyurethane plastics. Interesting fact about it is that they can do this even in anaerobic environments. So in air-free environments, they can still Whoa. break down this plastic. How cool. Which is cool because that could make it effective even under the ground in landfills. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And again, talking about this, the article that I was reading has had a quote, or not a quote, but a warning from the professor who led this research uh-huh. team that we should definitely not expect too much to come of this. Because mm-hmm. obviously it's a, an appealing thing, but you can't overdo your expectations because it's going to take... Years and years to do the research, and then even longer to try and figure out how to make it viable. Yeah. Which we'll talk about a little bit more, but, um, so a few years later, um, that particular application for fungus got kind of even more publicly known, and I can't remember what show I saw this on, but there was some show that, that had bits of this actual research in it um but there's a designer katharina unger she paired up with a team of microbiologists and created the fungi mutarium which is kind of cool so essentially they used the mycelium which is like a part of the mushroom and they used two common types of edible mushrooms, Pleurotus ostriatus, which is an oyster mushroom, and Schizophyllum commune, which is split gill mushrooms, both of which are edible for humans. And over the course of a few months, the fungi fully got rid of small pieces of plastic growing around. It was given food also, though, so it was given mm. edible auger. But in the process of eating, it broke down small pieces of plastic itself. So the result, in place of the pieces of plastic, were edible mushrooms. And the process of eating the plastic didn't change the edible part of the mushroom at all. How interesting. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's So it's like, you could be getting rid of small pieces of plastic and growing food. At the same time. Which is kind of cool. What else did I do to learn about this? (sighs) I don't know. Sometimes I think that I 
dissociate when I'm doing notes. Yeah. And I like go into a different part of my brain mm -hmm. and like type up these notes. And then I sit here and try to do the podcast with you. <laughs> and I look at these notes like I've never, like I didn't write them. Yeah. <laughs> it's very odd and I don't like it. So, okay. Let's just, we know that we, we now know that there are some types of fungi that are able to eat plastic, which is really fucking cool. The problem is the same as any other research project that could do good for the world is money. Uh. So they're not, they're, they're struggling to get enough funding to be able to try and develop these things for a larger scale than just like, hey, look, I can consume this small piece of plastic in a Petri dish because I'm a scientist and I can make it grow there. But we're, it's not going to do us any fucking good when it comes to like getting rid of plastic waste if we can't develop it on a larger scale. Yeah. So right now, the, the team leaders are trying to apply for a patent and hopefully publish some articles which would secure them some more grants, but who knows what will happen. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much the skinny of it. I, yeah, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was great. That's so cool. I hope that it, it's not another situation where it's like, just play it kudzu everywhere. Kudzu will solve it, you know? <laughs> I mean, at least this shit would be more edible than kudzu. I would That's get it. True. Kudzu is edible, but like... But mushrooms are delicious. Yeah, it's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, that's what... That's that's it. That's what I have for today. Cool. That was cool. That's my portion. That was fun. It's time for Frankie to talk now. Cool. Well, today we are going to learn about a fungus called ergot. And bum bum bum. <laughs> I feel like we need like a Twilight Zone <laughs> theme song inserted right there. So first I'm gonna talk a little bit about rye, which is one of the biggest things that it grows on. So rye became really popular because it is a very helpful crop. It crowds out weeds, it thrives in poor soil, and it'll grow pretty much where little little else will grow. Um, so the European settlers were like, settlers, settlers, <laughs> the European settlers were like, yeah, let's bring this to the American colonies. Winters are terrible there. Maybe we can grow some rye. And it did well. It survived through these inhospitable winters. But the problem with rye is that it's really vulnerable to this fungus called ergot, whose scientific name is, <laughs> uh, Claviceps purpurea. So ergot grows on a wide variety of grasses, but it really likes rye because rye's growth cycle coincides with the spread of ergot. And it just lines up so perfectly that it's like a hellish match made in heaven. <laughs> like I was saying, rye is super robust. It can survive colder temperatures and it has this really slow growth throughout the winter. And it, then it grows really quickly in the spring and it ripens in early fall. And as it ripens, these ergot spores go into the open flowers of rye, pretending to be little grains of pollen. 
And that gives them access to the ovary, which then they take over and they take the place of the embryonic grain along the stalk. And it looks pretty much exactly like the grain. It's really hard to detect and see because it just kind of looks like sun exposure on the rye. So for That's really unfortunate. Really unfortunate. So for a <laughs> long time, it went completely undetected. So it is toxic to people, this ergot. It contains lysergic acid, which LSD is synthesized from. Ooh, so we gonna get some trippy shit some up in here, trippy huh? trippy bread, yeah. It's basically exactly what it is because it <laughs> survives the brewing process and the baking process. What? Yeah. So um, basically you're just tripping if you do this. But although that sounds like fun, it is not. Because ergot poisoning can also cause miscarriage, seizures, psychosis, convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, gangrene of your extremities, and oftentimes death. So... Wait. <laughs> so you're telling me, you're telling me that it can cause gangrene? Yeah, that's actually pretty common. So I'll talk about it a little bit later. But depending on where the rye is being grown, depend like is it changes the effects of the ergot. So it's like a little bit different chemical compositions that causes different um, symptoms. But a lot of a really common one is gangrene of the extremities and people losing their fingers and toes. So that's just fucking crazy to me. So based on the climate mm -hmm. that it's grown in changes the chemical composition, which changes the side effects of the poisoning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit why about how like... Um, that also helped with it going undetected and unnoticed for so long because it doesn't. Yeah, I was about look to say. I feel like, I feel like, it had to have made it to where you can't like pin down that this is what's causing anything. So in the Middle Ages, it was called Saint Anthony's Fire or Dancing Mania. It was called this because the bunch of monks, Saint Anthony um, Temple monks were really, really good at um, helping people with this affliction. And it was also called dancing mania because of the muscle convulsions. So it was, you know, also called the dance of death when someone had really bad ergot poisoning, all of their muscles would spasm <laughs> so hard. I, yeah. I will never, it will never cease to amaze me how fanciful, olden times made such terrible things know, the right? dancing death what yeah. the who the fuck decided that oh we're talking about death let's make it sound like it would be a fun way to go i mean <laughs> like, you have to assume though that everyone was dying so young and it was death was so prevalent in society back then that they were like it's a lot oh <laughs> uh, that's like uh, i mean i've known about this for quite a while now but mm -hmm. Ring Around the Rosie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's always, that tripped me out when I found out that's a song about the plague. Yeah. And that people carried around po so dark. pockets full of posy. Yeah. They carry, they filled their pockets with flowers so that they wouldn't smell the death in the air. Yeah. <laughs> just so many dead bodies. <sighs> it's really, it's just it's a whole thing. It's fucked up. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's a lot. So... These whole villages in the Middle Ages would just come up with this affliction and it would just take out whole villages. Basically, rye is a peasant grain. 
So a lot of people who were eating this rye and this um, ergot were peasants, which led to quite a few many uprisings from the peasants as they're like tripping and having hallucinations, <laughs> having these delusions. They're like, let's take down the ruling class. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't get, that's, I guess that's kind of a positive <laughs> side of it. Yeah. Is that where Eat the Rich came from? Maybe. (laughs) Um, So, here's a theory. In 1976, Dr. Linda Caporeal of the... Oh, my God. What is that word? (laughs) Oh, God. I need to Google this because I don't know what I wrote. This is why I have to go back and type my notes because I write so fast and then I don't realize how bad my handwriting's getting until it's practically unreadable yeah. at a certain point. The Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Dr. Linda proposed that the Salem witch trials were actually a bad case of ergot poisoning. I had heard about this on... One of my other favorite podcasts, Morbid. Yeah, which we talked about. They did about an episode. <laughs> I know. I know. They need to like uh they need to have a they they should they should listen to our podcast because yeah. I listen to theirs almost every day. I mean I've tagged them in everything we posted in the last few weeks, but they haven't responded. I guess they're busy or whatever. No, what? it must be real terrible. I to mean, run they a do giant like three episodes new podcast week. now. I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. We'll I get struggle there. to do two a month. Yeah. <laughs> when it's our full time job, we'll get there. Um, so ergot forms after very specific climate, um, parameters. It needs a severe winter and then a very damp spring, which in 1961 was exactly what Salem had. It had a really long, wet spring and a really severe winter. And the Salem Witch Trials were in 1962, which is when they were consuming all of that rye from the year before. So the theory is these two girls that kind of started all of this by having seizures, convulsions, hallucinations. um, The reason that they got it first was because their immune systems were weaker since they were younger. And then the doctor goes, oh my God, I'm so religious. I know what this is. It's freaking witchcraft. <laughs> and then the girls were like, yeah, we're young girls. We're totally going to play along with this and kept it going. <laughs> we, uh, on another podcast that I listened to, actually fairly recently on You're Wrong About, they talked about the Salem witch trials and how impressionable children are mm. and like yep. getting, uh, they trying to get, Kids make up fanciful stories all the time to explain stuff. Absolutely. I love so that like episode, yeah. So it's like not hard to imagine that they would go along with the story that you're feeding them mm-hmm. and then just make it even more elaborate and extravagant. Like, totally yeah, stands totally to totally witchcraft. We're not just tripping balls over here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so interestingly enough, the witch trials abruptly ended in 1963, which also coincides with an, when all of the rye was eaten up and gone. Oh, wow. So 
social psychologists also agree with everything we've just been talking about with these girls and everything. And they said the town was going through huge political unrest due to a smallpox out smallpox outbreak and their rapidly expanding population. So they were like, it was ripe for mass hysteria because everyone was just freaked out already. Everyone was just freaked out already. <laughs> oh, man. It's just... It, watching you flip pages and try and get your bearings straight cracks me up because you it was just like the most exasperated page turn. And that's that. <laughs> and that's <laughs> like, that. So it's really interesting if you look at the history and the data... Because drops in population immediately followed heavy rye diets. Damn. Yeah. So another theory is that ergot poisoning was a big part of the early years of the Black Death. Because in 1347, the conditions were ideal, again, for ergot. And it's thought that these two co um, coexisted at the same time because A, the symptoms are very similar. And B, it would make sense that ergot would weaken their someone's immune system, making way for the Black Death to just wreak havoc. So is this something that we, like, test for now? Like, we know now? Like, do people, we is do it still a now. thing that happens? And it's very, very easy to cure, or, like, to eradicate, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And that's okay, why okay, you don't okay, really okay. see it anymore. Getting ahead because of myself. Because people know, and... Hopefully, if you're out there brewing your own beer or growing your own rye for beer or bread, you should learn this because... <laughs> if you have a field of rye, yeah. you should listen to this episode yeah. very closely. I'll tell, you how, I'll tell you how in about five minutes. Stay tuned. So, <laughs> <laughs> back to the history. So, like, like, you know, in Europe in the 1500s and 1600s, which is where a big deal, and it wasn't just Salem, it was everywhere. But interestingly enough... No, like pretty much none, hardly any of these like witch hysteria things happened in places that didn't have a high rye consumption. So it it's, can be kind of deduced that the two are correlated, that a lot of the witch hysteria comes from ergot. Because it added to delusions. Mm -hmm. And not always people were dying. Some people were just getting delusional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And seizures and convulsions and hallucinations where it makes you feel like you have something crawling under your skin and stuff. Yeah. Hate that. <laughs> so in 1951, that was the last time there was a big ergot outbreak. Quote unquote big. I mean, it, it, in this small French village called Pont Saint-Esprit, there were five deaths and a whole lot of, um, you know, Sickness, hallucinations, that sort of thing. Um, and they think the only reason that this happened was because this village was so small and remote that they didn't know that if you have rye, you have to put it in a brine because in salt, ergot will rise and the rye will fall. And that's what? the cure. Yep. Well, damn. Yeah. So, Such a simple fix. I know, it's so simple. To have, so, to have potentially caused so many problems, I know, it's such a simple fix. I know. So if you're ever going to consume some rye, do it in a brine solution first. Um, I wonder how, but also, just thinking about the anthropological 
implications of that. I know that salt now is like a relatively inexpensive commodity. Yeah, that's true. But back then, salt was like highly sought sought after and not the easiest thing to come by. So it might not have actually helped that much to even know that if they couldn't get salt to be able to do that because they would probably reserve what salt stores they had to cure meat. I wonder if they could do it in like ocean water too, like if places near the ocean. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know any of that, though. Curious. Curious. Um, So, researchers isolated over 40 different alkaloids in ergot. We talked about alkaloids a little bit in the last poison episode. They are basically the plant's defense mechanism that is the thing that makes it poison to humans. Um, But, like we talked about in the poison episodes, the dose makes the poison. And ergot has actually, since the 1500s, been used by midwives. So midwives discovered that their pregnant sows would enter premature labor if they ate rye with these um, ergot. I can't remember the name of what it's called. It's like some weird word, but these bits of ergot in them. And in 1582, there's the earliest recorded use of it as a quote-unquote medicine. They gave 0.5 milligrams of the uteroactive alkaloid ergometrine, which later was used by obstetricians in the 1970s. Hmm. It has since been replaced by safer drugs because it still isn't really the safest, most stable, and it's hard to dose. But it is still considered valuable for preventing postpartum hemorrhaging. And since 1868, it's been used in migraines. Hmm. It wasn't purified until 1918, but the dose still remains in widespread use. So that's pretty cool. Ergot actually brought us some cool stuff, too. But that's all I had. That was ergot. Isn't it so cool? (laughs) Deadly It's so interesting how it was, like, so prevalent and so deadly and so awful for so long. And then someone was like, oh, just put it in some salt water. And then it's, like, eradicated now. You wonder how fucking people figure, like... Did they figure that out because some motherfucker was like, I'm going to do a salt brine for the specific type of bread that I want to make. And then all of a sudden they're like, like, what are these weird things floating? What is this on top? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's what's been causing people to die. Yeah. It's like, how the, what the fuck, who, that is, it's, who, why, how, who does this? Who knows? I don't get it. I have to assume maybe it was like what we were saying is like, maybe they got some ocean water or something and like i don't know yeah it's just interesting it's interesting but yeah so that's ergot ergo ergot and that's our episode do you have anything else you want to add about fungi for this week no (laughs) (laughs) so anyway that's our episode thank you so much for joining us today Thank you. That was fungi. We got some cool stuff today in today's episode. Got some information about fungi from this fungi. (laughs) (laughs) I hate myself for saying that just so everybody knows because I doubt that Frankie will edit that out and I'm going to be sad about it. (laughs) If you want more puns, follow us on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) At Propagated Podcast. (laughs) I was going to try and get pants. I was laughing. I'm sorry. I also do a lot of puns on Twitter. 
at PropagatedPod. And if you want to Gmail us, if you have any cool mushrooms growing in your yard, you want to tell us some fun mushroom facts, you want to talk about ergot, you want to send us pictures of your really cool houseplant, email us at propagatedpodcast at gmail.com. And that's that. We have some other fun things in the works, so stay tuned, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.